Hi there, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you again from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. It is indeed in the afternoon of the 11th of April, 2020, where I'm going to do at least a second part of what I brought in earlier, that is this morning. <clears throat> and what we left off last time was the beginning of a discussion of how one makes ceramide in the cell. And what I want to do is continue on with that. But the initial phase of this lecture is going to be a, a reminder of the significance of lipid grafts in disease and in normal physiology. So that's what we're going to get started with right now. Again, this is Dr. Dan Guerra. I think you all know who I am because you're listening to this. Um, uh, this is Authentic Biochemistry. And this is part three of single mediated human disease. So I'm going to talk a little bit from a paper published in uh, Chemistry and Physics of Lipids, published in November of 2018, <clears throat> so about 15, 16 months ago. The um, volume of that is 216. The pages are 114 to 131. Now, here are a couple of <laughs> questions that you may ask yourself. Is there no additional activation energy needed for a specific annular held protein to translocate into specific membrane rafts during formation? Now, annular held proteins, remember I've been talking about this for a long time, but that basically means lipids that surround specific proteins that become interdigitated into biological membranes. Now, these annular lipids can be like, for example, just a couple of phosphoglycerol lipids like phosphatidylcholine or phosphatidylserine, a small domain like that, or they can be much larger domains because the protein is much larger, having perhaps anywhere from five to seven membrane-spanning domains, usually alpha helices, right? If you remember your protein biochemistry. So that's the question. Now, obviously, is there activation? Obviously, it has to do with what? Salvation properties. Not salvation, salvation. Where in the more hydrophobic, the folded uh, polypeptide three-dimensional state is, the more likely it will diffuse into a lipid phase or a lipid structure upon form formation. Now, if that structure permits some level of sufficiency to move to a lower energy state, that's where it's going to reside. Hence, it'll be a hydrophobic effect. So raft inclusion will titrate according to distributional sequencing where there is a stabilized lower energy potential. Besides biophysical considerations, which is what we're looking at here, and they are significant, it, you can also ask this question. Is there a, a, another activation energy for transition state clearance of a polypeptide inclusion. And is this energy neutral as with the reorganization of water droplets and oil? That is, when all is said and done, the energy balances out. The answer lies probably in these van der Waals forces, and they force a protein annular lipid aggregation during co-biosynthetic processes, <coughs> usually in the ER and Golgi apparatus, where these lipid and protein domains start to form or coalesce. And we call that a processing and turnover reaction. Now, some people suggest, some researchers suggest that these annular lipids 
are only loosely associated, non-specifically, if you will, as chaperonins. And the process may be in a spectrum of monomer-polymer associations, depending upon the solvent chemistry, the level of mixing of lipid and protein, and the import and export rate of newly formed lipid molecular species, as affected by things like enzymes, such as the acidic sphingomyelinase. Now, one feature in the protein may be, again, going back to its transmembrane domain. That may need to conform to a fit, a relaxed or globular superdomain structure to accommodate for the increased thickness of lipid rafts and to reduce, ultimately, surface tension. Now, we talked before about de novo serine palmitoyl transferase that being the first reaction for the de novo synthesis of the sphingolipids. Oh, uh, and we're going as far as ceramide because that's the major one I want to look at. Now, that enzyme is inhibited by a fungal toxin called muriosin. Now, there's an ER localized ceramide synthase, and that's inhibited by the fungal toxin fumonisin B1. And in the de novo pathway, ceramides are ultimately transported to the Golgi from the ER. And then that's where they're converted to glycosphingolipids and sphingomyelin, where the ceramide transport protein may be necessary to do that movement. Ceramide is the major determinant for lipid raft biology, with cholesterol playing basically a stabilizing role. Lipidated and glipiated proteins, covalent modifications there, serve as their own microdomains, I guess I'd call them, as expected as free biological agents. Now, lipid rafts, the way that I look at it, are spatiotemporal, suborganello structures of organized and spontaneous teleobiological agencies. They dialogue with each and every membrane system in the cell, plus the endosomal, exosomal pathways, making them the architectonic of cellular functionality, both locally and systemically. So that's my definition of a lipid graph and what it does. So we talked about ceramide biosynthesis being controlled by this palmitoyl uh, transferase. <clears throat> Uh, and then ultimately going all the way through to the dehydroceramide saturase to make the ceramide. And we, now I can tell you that ceramide is a precursor to the axonolocalized or the dendrocyte generated sphingomyelin by enzymes called sphingomyelin, sphingomyelin synthases. And there are a number of inducible and constitutive sphingomyelinases, which then break down sphingomyelin, and one of them is the acidic. And I also wanted to tell you that ceramides is a precursor for the production of sphingosine by a ceraminidase. Ceramide synthases can perform the back reaction from sphingosine. And that's a, therefore a third way that you make ceramide. And those that's all called the salvage pathway. Now, sphingosine kinases, like sphinc-1 and sphinc-2, phosphorylate sphingosine to S1P, and that's a highly regulated series of reactions. And you find it in various subcellular compartments. And therefore, dephosphorylation is also highly regulated. And of course, it's carried out with very specific sphingosine 1-phosphate phosphatases. 
and there are multiple forms of those, which are under heavy control of covalent modification. So Marshfingosine-1-phosphate can be hydrolyzed irreversibly all the way down to basically ethanolamine phosphate and hexadecinal, right, the aldehyde, uh, and that's done by S1P lyase, and that, that ends its biological activity. All those other pathways are interconvertible, ones I just mentioned to you. All right. Now, sphenosine <clears throat> itself, once it's made from ceramide by ceraminidase, can be phosphorylated, as I said, by sphen K, and it can bind to various receptors. Receptor 2 or 3, which makes it go through a GQ pathway, which turns on phospholipase C, opens up calcium stores, which then triggers protein kinase C and constitutive NOS. Um, if S1P binds to receptors 1 or 5, it goes through a GI pathway, which will turn on phosphatidylinositol 3 kinase and the AKT pathway or the ERK pathway. And those pathways then regulate lots of things like glycogen synthase kinase 3 beta, the BATS bad system for apoptosis, and the FOXO um, transcriptional regulation of, for example, T regulatory cells. Now, if you go through the receptor 2, okay, or 5, you, there's another pathway that uh, is further canonically redistributed, and that can go through what's called the G1213 pathway, which triggers Rho, that's the RHO pathway, and that will then allow for the synthesis of NF-kappa-B, and that will actually uh, turn on the inducible nitric oxide synthase. So this is highly linked up, right? So, tracing one phosphate through its G-protein couple receptors, those are all those receptors I was just talking about, are going to regulate oxidative and nitrosative stress and death survival. Uh, as the tracing 1-phosphate receptor 2 inhibits AKT, while the receptor 3 activates it, uh, INOS is typically induced by NF-kappa-B, but it also can undergo sphingosine 1-phosphate, ceramide 1-phosphate-dependent suppression, and that's via another kinase pathway called P38. So ceramide thus participates in the control of senescence, different, these are processes, senescence, differentiation, neural arborization in the CNS of free sphingosine may also modulate cell death and ceramide 1-phosphate stimulates cellular survival, okay? Sphingosine 1-phosphate regulates cell viability, neuronal excitability, and arborization. Sphingolipids are also engaged, of course, in immune phenomena, which you talk about all the time in authentic biochemistry and in varied lectures. All of those critically alter the fate of brain cells in such things as neurodegenerative disorders. Now, the roles of sphingosine 1-phosphate and ceramide in the survival of neurons are far more complex than the antagonism that can be described simply with a sphingosine or sphingolipid rheostat model. That rheostat model basically looks at, a, uh, if you're thinking about a balancing act between ceramide and sphingosine, it talks about whether or not there's higher ceramide or higher levels of sphingosine 1-phosphate, and whether or not that's going to be related to the pathology of Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and in fact, in aging. In aging, you always see an increase in ceramide and a drop in sphingosine 1-phosphate. That's because there's a decrease in the enzymes, which are regulating the focal organized accumulation of those two sphingolipids. So S1P and ceramide antagonistically signal self-survival or death. 
largely be shared mediators, and both can directly inhibit each other's biosynthesis. It's a beautifully orchestrated system. So <clears throat> S1P is classically viewed as an anti-apoptotic agent. That's all kinds of programs of that. It's been shown to mediate the actions of numerous anti-apoptotic compounds. S1P typically opposes the pro-apoptotic role of ceramide. Presumably, it does this by decreasing oxidative stress and modulating the expression of pro and anti-apoptotic proteins of the BCL2 family. So you have AIF, which is apoptosis-inducing factor, AP1. You have sphingomyelinases, both the acidic and the neutral. You have LC3-2, which is a lipidated microtubule-associated protein. You have uh, that in various forms. And you have, of course, ceramide, ceramide 1-phosphate, phosphatases, ceramide synthases, etc. Now, the number one key feature I want to tell you about ceramide again, I'm not going to talk more about sphingosine 1-phosphate because that's not the dictum of these lectures. But ceramide itself, remember, can be, can be accumulated by sphingomyelinase. And the one we're really looking at is the acid one because it's in the phagolysosomal compartment. But again, you know that it can be turned on by serine pomodoro transfers because that's the NOVA synthesis. Um, and also by a ceramide 1-phosphatase. Right? But once ceramide's made, it will turn on PP2A, which is a phosphatase, right? which will shut down AKT. When AKT is shut down, you're going to then shut down the glycogen synthase kinase 3 beta. Okay. Now, I'll tell you what the farther uh, sequelae of that will be, but I also want to tell you ceramide turns on reactive oxygen, uh, and that's because of its regulation of the electron transport chain in the mitochondria. Um, and ultimately, the reactive oxygen is going to turn on the, the, the genus kinase P38, and it's going to block the ERK kinase, right? And so ultimately, what that's going to induce is P53AP1, all of that, is going to feed into more reactive oxygen, more of that apoptosis-inducing factor, that AIF. You're going to get cytochrome C release, and then you're going to get all of these cysteine spartate proteases, caspases 2 and 3 and 5 and 8 and 9. You're going to get Becklin 1, and you're going to get LC3-2. What those are all going to lead to, all because of ceramide accumulation, is in the central nervous system, you're going to get axonal de degeneration, and you're going to get neuronal death. Now, the same kind of thing can play out in any cell type. Basically, you can get these really nasty forms of apoptosis, the ones I told you about, the ones that spill their contents out, right? Necrotosis, right? Uh, ferrotosis and pyrotosis, those three forms of programmed cell death that do not allow for suicide of the cell and the inclusion of all the internal uh, bi biological systems in that cell, biochemical processes, and, and therefore what would induce a hyperimmune response. All of those other kinds, those subsequent kinds of apoptosis I just told you about, those subsets, are all explosive and they all induce a hyperimmune response. That's where you get a lot of cell death. All right, so let's move on here. Let's talk a little bit about a paper in International uh, Immunopharmacology. International Immunopharmacology, published in 2018. The volume on that is 55, and the page is 205, starting. 
Now, what this paper is going to tell you, a lot of interesting facts, this leads to the etiology of diseases that are associated either with a pathogen infection or simply with a chronic state of hyperinflation, such as what is organized around obesity. And remember, we have a tremendous obesity problem in the United States, worldwide, but in the United States, it's somewhere around two-thirds or three-quarters of the population are obese. And obesity then will give you a lot of free fatty acid in circulation. Free fatty acid can act as an endogenous ligand for a whole host of cell surface receptors, including the TLR2s and the TLR4s. Now, toll-like receptors, the TLRs, are expressed on lots of different cell types, but the ones I'm triggering here are the innate immune cells, and they induce pro-inflammatory cytokine release. You're getting a hyperimmune response from fatty acid binding to toll-like receptor. Yep, that's true. Now, if you want to think about the canonical bacterial system, think about lipopolysaccharide, which is, again, a bacterial TLR4 ligand. Now, that does, and it does free fatty acid, alter triacylglycerol accumulation. It increases ceramide biosynthesis. It induces lipolysis. That's why it affects TAG. And therefore, you get a lot of fatty acids made. You get a lot of fatty acid oxidation. And that's a lot of energy for generating further inflammatory response because you need a lot of ATP to make a lot of, to make turn on the pro-inflammatory system, which is the hyperimmune system. So fatty acid oxidation regulates macrophage polarization and affects the production, indeed, of inflammatory cytokines. Fatty acid transport protein, or FATP, is found in the plasma membrane and in multiple intracellular organelles. It has a fatty acylcoid ligase activity, and it's essential for fatty acid uptake. And yes, it exists in multiple, how about six different isoforms. So FATPs are expressed in macrophages. So this paper in National Immunopharmacology tells you that they looked at these FATPs and the inflammatory response mediated by fatty acid using something called a bone marrow-derived macrophage, or BMDM. Uh, and mouse macrophage cell lines that they used also, were able, they were able to manipulate and they were able to trigger an induction using LPS. Okay. And LPS will induce an acute, lipopolysaccharide will induce an acute lung injury. That's known as an ALI, yeah? And that is what happens during a lot of different disease states in humans. The results here are going to tell you that this FATP, this fatty acid transport protein, is going to regulate the production of inflammatory, pro-inflammatory cytokines through ceramide production and through the c June N-terminal kinase, junk kinase, by the way. <clears throat> okay, so that's what that whole system is going to tell you. That Now, downstream from there, it's going to also describe this, that Interferon gamma is going, to, is going to come from M1, macrophage 1 polarization. But interleukin 4, which is anti-inflammatory, is going to allow for macrophage 2 polarization. M1 macrophages produce pro-inflammatory cytokines. M2 macrophages induce low production of inflammatory cytokines, but a higher level, so the ratio is different, of anti-inflammatory cytokines. So... In a paper published in Frontiers of Immunology in 2019, January, volume 8, page 3086, 
Okay, I want to tell you this. Now, the name of that paper, that paper is about the molecular basis of viral inhibition, okay, of IRF and stat-dependent immune systems. Now, what are those? This paper is going to, this paper does describe that, that the antiviral innate immunity is basically the first line of immune responses to viruses, particularly mammalian cells, which is what we're interested in here. <coughs> okay, and what that triggers is a production of interferons. And these are proteins that are triggered by a viral challenge in mammalian cells. Those then in turn activate all the antiviral defense program, okay? And you're going to get something called interferon-stimulated genes in that process, or ISGs. And they're largely regulated by something called the interferon regulatory factor, or the IRF, which is basically a transcription factor. It's also a signal transducer. And finally, it's going to activate the, the signal transducer and activate transcription at the STAT pathway. And that's going to give you a whole family of transcription factors to turn on a multiple suite of genes, right? So the mechanisms of these IRFs and STATs are going to involve lots of different post-translational modifications and reorganization of proteins into complexes. You're going to get a lot of nuclear translocation of these proteins which are now the result in transcription factors. Now, viruses, all different kinds of viruses, evade that response, okay? So they either alter the IRF pathway or the STAT pathway, either um, post-translationally or further upstream, right? They can even block the nuclear translocation of transcription factors, and they can also involve just direct proteolysis and degradation of these interferon response factors in the stats, okay? So there's a lot of things that viruses can have in their armament. Now, those would be virulence factors. <clears throat> those virulence factors are missing in the current coronavirus. So that's why it's not as deadly as potentially could be. Huh. So I just want you to understand that you have class M1 macrophages and class M2 macrophages. And this is really an important feature, okay? Because basically M1s work through interferon gamma and what triggers them are things like LPS. Leukotrienes also trigger them. I told you viruses trigger them. And that turns on this whole NF kappa B pathway and the production of all these IRFs, right? So it's a pro-inflammatory system to kill the invading pathogen. In this case, we're talking virus. The M2s, totally different character. They're basically quiescent. They're like, they're, they're telling the system not to react, okay? And so the switch from M2, M1 to M2 is from an active mobilized hyperimmune response to not shut that down. And the switch between M1 and M2 has a lot to do with what cytokines and chemokines are made, how that signal is transduced through the receptors. The major players here for turning on M2 are interleukin-4, so that's an anti-inflammatory um, cytokine. IgG itself will turn on a pathway which will render the macrophages senescent. IL-10, another really potent anti-inflammatory cytokine. <clears throat> and then glucocorticoids will do the same thing. That's why people are given glucocorticoids to suppress the immune response, because they're going to work through a series of proteins like the HSP90 and the PEAT23, and all of that is going to ultimately lead to 
an alteration of transcription factors, which is going to make it an M2 quiescent macrophage. Okay, so that's what the cardiochrist is Now, what this paper ultimately shows is that these fatty acid binding proteins, uh, which transport fatty acids, are really up upticked in M1 macrophages. Okay, they're really turned up in M1 macrophages where uh, the FATP1 and 4 isoforms, but FATP6 is the one that comes up in them too. See the different subtypes of the transport proteins, which are going to transport different fatty acids, <coughs> will manipulate this process. All right? So FATP1 is the most highly expressed among all the isoforms in those uh, pre-cells, right? The BMDM cells with bone marrow-derived macrophages. And that may suggest that the FATP1 mainly contributes just to simple fatty acid uptake of the macrophage for probably beta oxidation for energy. LPS enhances that fatty acid uptake in a time-dependent matter, whereas interleukin-4, that immunosuppressive cytokine, doesn't have any effect on fatty acid uptake, which means that probably that's one of the ways you get a phenotypic-dependent macrophage distribution. <clears throat> All right. So FATP1 enhances inflammatory cytokine production. LPS, of course, does the same thing. And again, it's working through the NF-kappa B, JNK pathway, or the junk pathway, P38, MAP kinase, and, uh, and sometimes work in macrophages. Okay, overexpression of FATP1 will give you a phosphorylation of JNK. Ceramide will mediate the production of all those inflammatory cytokines, for example, in lupin 6, via that junk phosphorylation. Overexpression of FATP1 increases the level of ceramide flat out, straight on, and specifically also in the presence of other factors like LPS. Okay, so you see how this works as a co distributed event. Ceramide activates directly NF kappa B in macrophages, so the ceramide JNK NF kappa B pathway contributes to the FATP1, the fatty acid transport protein 1 dependent cytokine hyperimmune response. Overexpression and silencing of that protein will either enhance or suppress the production of inflammatory cytokines. <clears throat> Maybe the FATP1 contributes to those functions ultimately through C16 uptake. Remember, that's palmitic acid so that you can make more ceramide. But ceramide production is also dependent on not just that palmitoyl CoA for de novo synthesis, but also very intensely on sphingomyelinase pathway. And so that palmitic acid plays a major role in the pro-inflammatory response. And you get a lot of palmitic acid in circulation in an obese human. So that leads me ultimately to tell you that ceramide mediates the acquired respiratory distress syndrome. Ceramide's elevated in bronchial alveolar lavage fluid or BALF of humans with ARDS and ceramides increased in the blood from sepsis patients. Remember, I told you sepsis is a hypoxia situation. The level of ceramide correlates directly with mortality. Since palmitic, palmitic acid drives the inflammation in the lung via ceramide production, maybe the targeting of that FATP1, listen to that, could diminish inflammatory cytokine production, limit macrophage activity in the lung, and maybe even help in the process of curing ARDS or anything that looks like respiratory distress syndrome. And I think you know what, what I'm referring to. So I'm gonna stop there.
and um, we will reconnect with our um, uh, next program, probably later today, if not today, uh, I will not work on Easter, so it will be the day after Easter, Easter Monday. So this is Dr. Dan Guerra saying on the 11th of April, bye for now.